Hello and welcome to another episode of What the Fintech, the podcast from the team behind Fintech Futures and the Banking Technology Magazine. I'm Alex Hamilton, Deputy Editor at Fintech Futures, and joining me today are Sharon Kamathi, my editor at Fintech Futures. Hey! And Manuel Silva, General Partner at Morrow Capital. Hello! Welcome to you all. Uh, although people across the world are heading back into their offices in the past few weeks, uh, we're still playing it safe and coming to you entirely remotely. Uh, when the new normal actually becomes the new normal, we'll be able to return to our podcast studio, so you'll just have to keep an eye out for that. Uh, naturally, with someone like Manuel on the podcast, we are going to be talking about innovation, venture capital, and fintech valuations. But first up, as per usual, we're going to be starting the session with the week in numbers. We've all gone out and picked some news stories with interesting or intriguing numbers involved. Um, Manuel, you're our guest, so it's uh, it's up to you. You go first. What, what news story has caught your eye? Perfect. So, of course, very biased. 400 million, 400 million is a number, and that's the amount of assets on the management that Moro Capital, the, the, the venture capital fund that uh, Santander just spun out, has uh, to deploy. And again, very biased because I'm part of that, and that's part of the reason why I'm here. Well, that's awesome. Um, and I guess because we're seeing quite a lot of um, different innovation labs and we've spoken about it as well before in this podcast. I mean, just this week as well, we had ABN AMRO, which agreed a three-year partnership with investment and innovation firm Techstars to support new startups in the industry. Um, and also a report from the Association for Financial Markets in Europe, AFME, um, also called on the EU to focus on its five-year digital agenda on new technology adoption. So we're seeing quite a lot of these um, innovation labs um, and digital focus uh, being at the forefront, especially amid COVID. I'm sure it was something that was probably already on people's agenda. Um, anything to add, Alex? Uh, I mean, from my perspective, I was actually, I hope I'm not stealing anything from you later on in the show, actually, Sharon, but I was going to ask, uh, you, you mentioned COVID there. Um, mm. I, I mean, how I wonder, someone perhaps we could ask Manuel, because he's the expert here, and I'm definitely not an expert <laughs> when it comes to venture capital stuff, uh, how uh, COVID and coronavirus has affected the investment in, in new startups that, that he's seen, and how has it affected Morrow's uh, strategy? Well, I mean, I think... Um, you know, I think, of course, it has affected a lot of startups, a lot of companies and the way funds think about their portfolio. Uh, so, you know, we, we went through initially kind of a deep phase of, um, you know, we all investors, I would say it's not specific to us, you know, we, a deep phase of trying to understand how resilient our portfolio was advising companies in our portfolio on how they could be better, they could preserve cash, they could seize the opportunity at times. Uh, and I think things are slightly getting back to normal to some extent. And we're seeing, you know, more and more funding rounds. The good companies still see very healthy numbers and a lot of attraction from the market. And maybe the ones that had a harder time need to be a little bit more creative. But, you know, things are getting slowly back to normal, hopefully. Excellent. Okay. Then, uh, I will introduce my number for this week. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of an old one, but I think it still has relevance in some ways. It's uh, 3.5 billion pounds. Uh, that is the number that HM Revenue and Customs in the UK ballparked for the amount of coronavirus relief payments uh, sent in error or claimed by fraudsters. Uh, interestingly enough, I was talking to Rachel Woolley from, from Feniger about AML and fraud in general, and I asked her whether we would start to see headlines about misappropriated coronavirus funds, and, and here we are. About, barely a week later, we were writing about it. Um, 
as well as uh, earlier last week, we had JP Morgan announce that it was firing staff for con- uh, after conducting an investigation into the illegal use of the Paycheck Protection Program loans. Uh, so this is not just confined to the UK. But uh, speaking of HMRC, um, Howard, uh, Jim Harrow, the chief executive of HMRC, uh, reported to the Public Accounts Committee that between five to ten percent of the money sent. Uh, to fund the government's furlough scheme uh, have been could have been awarded incorrectly. That's the figure they're ballparking. Um, the coronavirus job retention scheme, uh, also known as the furlough scheme, obviously allows companies to claim a proportion of their employees' wages if they place them on furlough. Uh, the government's paid out around $35 billion so far. Uh, now, Harris seems to expect that a vast majority of that $3.5 billion is down to user error, uh, claimants essentially not knowing how to apply properly and putting the wrong business names, uh, the wrong claimants, that kind of stuff. Uh, he says HMRC is not going to go after employers who've made, uh, in his words, legitimate mistakes. Um, he says, uh, and I quote, this is something new that everyone had to get to grips with. Uh, we'll expect employers to check their claims and repay any excess amounts. And obviously, the uh, the coronavirus job retention scheme was a huge, massive project to undertake on such short notice, and errors and problems can be expected. But uh, some people think the the numbers are a little bit low. Uh, think Tank, the policy exchange, warned in July that they they predicted that fraud could account for as much as eight billion lost on the scheme. Uh, and I feel that uh, misappropriation. Uh, and AML issues to do with coronavirus funding and loans is going to be something we're going to see emerging with greater regularity in, in the coming months. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that, Sharon? Yeah, we've seen quite a lot of reports that have essentially said that um, fraud and cyber attacks have risen amid COVID-19. Um, but I didn't want to just focus on on just that because this story itself is quite interesting and worth a little bit more insight. So I searched up... Um, some research with Bird and Bird who commented about this. Um, And basically, they were worried about how the HMRC determines an error from fraud in their investigations approach. So the HMRC have been helping in identifying potential fraudulent claims by over 8,000 whistleblower reports, meaning HMRC can deploy faster than they otherwise usually would. So accordingly, they've begun inquiries into some 27,000 high-risk cases. Um, So they're like to be um, events where a suspect uh, has a claim which is fraudulent as opposed to an error. Um, So it's like employees have been asked to work whilst they're on furlough or the claim has been made for employees who are never aware of being furloughed, Um, even non-employees, claims where they've been artificially inflated in some way. Um, So that's what they're sort of struggling with, um, whether or not it will be fraudulent or whether or not it's just by an error. Um, And also, basically, the HR Marcy have been contacting up to 3,000 employers each week um, trying to investigate whether or not it is actually fraud or it is just an error. Um, So they recommend that firms need to undertake an internal review. So that's looking at all relevant records and payments, um, employee sampling, where evidence is gathered from their employees in order to show whether or not they were asked to go on furlough or not. Um, Also, where these anomalies are detected, they, they then get a more forensic investigation. So looking at internal communications um, in order order to determine the behavior of where the disclosure was made in an error or actually fraud. So yeah, it it is quite interesting um, when you dive into it in terms of whether or not it will be fraud or an error. And I guess that's something that they're struggling with too, um, because people do sadly make mistakes. Excellent. Okay. Well, uh, that brings us on to Sharon, that brings us on to your story then. Big news. It is, uh, I'm, yes. I'm, it's so big, I'm not going to say what it is. Go ahead. 
Yes. So um, my number is going to be one. I know that there's more, but right now in Wall Street specifically with these bulge bracket banks, there's just one upcoming woman CEO. So that's pretty big news um, because they have been um, women in charge of, of banks, but they're not in Wall Street or bulge bracket. So Citigroup has become the first major Wall Street bank to appoint a woman as their next CEO, and it's Jane Fraser. Um, she will succeed the bank's current CEO, Mike Corbett. Um, so it was allegedly lined up last year, but they didn't really know whether or not that would go through. Um, And awkwardly enough, during a congressional hearing last year, seven bank bosses, including Corbett, failed to raise their hands up when asked whether they are likely to have a woman as a successor or a person of color. So that might have been a little bit orcs considering it is now Jane. I don't know whether they've had those conversations internally, um, but it's definitely one to flag up. And the US Federal Reserve has since asked banks to oversee um, in order to provide more clarity on what they are going to do to tackle the, la- the lack of racial and gender diversity in the financial industry. So at City um, black employees fell from 16% of its US workforce, so that's just in the US, in 2009 to 10.3% in 2018. So it's actually getting worse there. Um, and also, outside from the fact that there's you know evidence out there that shows more diversity in management positions actually equals better results. Um, just in banks uh, generally that are not Wall Street based, we only have five, including um, Jane. So there's one from NatWest, Santander, you guys have Anna Botten, um, Handels Banken, and Starling Bank. Um, so yeah, that now makes just the five. Um, the first one was allegedly Beth Elaine Mooney, um, who was the first woman to be a CEO of a top 20 US bank, and that was in 2011. So it does look like there's a lot more work to be done um, and hopefully quicker. Um, but what do you think about this, Alex and Manuel? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've, I I think that I, m- I remember uh, I literally read a story today actually um, about City. Uh, Mike Corbett uh, said in his outgoing notes um, that the uh, the person who takes over her from him should be prepared to lead changes to the bank from the beginning, uh, as in from the beginning of their tenure. And uh, Fraser's joining at a time where City has come under fire for uh, failing to. Sort of defending to have the proper internal processes when it comes to identifying risk in some cases. Um, the Fed and the, the OCC have said that, uh, well, according to the Financial Times, the OCC and the Fed have said, have said that they did not have a role, uh, in Corbett being asked to step down because they're both currently investigating City. So, um, Fraser's got a, she's got a job on her hands, um, to sort of turn that bank around, which is already undergoing a, a $1 billion uh, infrastructure projects in 2020. And it's a, it's a pretty big time to be stepping in. Um, but it's obviously also a good time to be stepping in. Uh, and I think, you know, it reminds me of that, um, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg quote when she said, you know, when will there be enough women in the, in the Supreme court? And she said, when there are nine of them. Um, and I, and you know, it's, it, I think yeah. hopefully this is, you know, a, a turning point where we can see a lot more women in, in, um, in a higher positions, especially among, uh, the big, uh, wall street names. Uh, I, have you got any thoughts on this memo? Um, yeah, no, I was going to say it's, I mean, it's kind of a shame that we still need to report on these things and being an exception because that should be the norm and, and, and things should be normalized in such a manner that they should be just embedded into corporate cultures and, you know, 
we're lucky at Santander to have Anna as our chairman. Um, and I've always worked surprisingly through my career, always worked with women and for women. And I do appreciate the differences in kind of management time and how they have interesting perspectives that are, that are actually really, really, um, complementary to the way, and, and they're really creative to the way you manage the financial institution. So, so, you know, hopefully over time, more appreciation to women taking CEO roles and, you know, senior management roles, because I think culturally it's good. And as you mentioned, there's clearly a, there's clearly a, a link, at least in my mind, I don't know how academically has been documented, but in my mind, diversity is a, um, you know, it's a proponent of better performance and better culture and better management. And so the more we can foster that, the better at every level. Now we move on to part two of the podcast. This is where we open up the discussion on a specific industry topic. We're going to be talking about funding, venture capital, and fintech valuations this week. We've titled it In These VC Streets. Got to give Sharon her props for the titles for our topics. Uh, before we dive deep into it, however, I want to give Manuel a chance to give us all a rundown on his new-ish role at Mora Capital and how things are shaping up. So give us an introduction and then Sharon will hit you with the questions. Take it away, Manuel. Yeah, no, thanks for that. So yes, Manuel Silva, GP or general partner at Moro Capital. And as you said, new wish, um, because effectively we're, we're kind of the successor fund to Santander Innoventures, which as you would imagine is Santander's corporate VC. Um, so we just, re- we just rebranded, relaunched September 11, which is an interesting date to do anything these days. Um, and very happy to share, uh, what we do uh, with you guys. Oh, that's really great. Yeah, I didn't even notice that you guys did launch it. Bit of an awkward date. Um, but you know what? No worries. It's onwards and I was going to say upwards, but that would also equally be <laughs> awkward. Um, so I'm just going to say <laughs> the question now. Are there any differences between Santander, Innoventures and Moro Capital? If so, what? And what sets it apart from other VCs and funds? Yeah, no, thanks. That's, that's the core question, um, for us. Uh, yes, no, lots, lots of differences, uh, and also lots of commonalities and, and, and big bet on legacy as well. Um, so more, more capital, we're effectively in, you know, we're autonomously managed. So obviously we as investment team make the decisions. We're backed by Santander, uh, but effectively it's, it's kind of on us, which allows us to be, uh, way more nimble, way more fast, which allows us to, you know, primarily align much better with uh, entrepreneurs and our co-investors so that basically there's, there's no doubt which side of the table we're on. Uh, and basically our entrepreneur's success is our success as well, right? But as I was saying, also building on legacy, um, InnoVentures has been running for four or five years. I've been in the team pretty much since the beginning, running it for the past two years. 36 investments, quite a few successes that we still manage. They are alongside us in Moro, so you know, nothing changes there. And of course, uh, the relationship with Santander, which is something that a number of, um, of our portfolio companies really praise and appreciate, is still as strong as it was. And so uh, in addition to doing our investing role, of course, uh, to the extent it makes sense, we try to see how companies in our portfolio can, can benefit from that affiliation and vice versa. How Santander can be more innovative by tapping into what we see and create those, um, those kind of uh, you know, special relationships. And really, that, that whole setting is what sets us apart from other VCs, right? So we have industry connections into Santander, into the industry. 
but also the kind of the, the independence and uh, and the speed to be able to do our own decisions and to be a little bit bolder and a little bit more um, you know uh, ex- experimental maybe that uh, that you would expect from something that's more into a corporate setting. Um, you know, la- last but not least, we're very international. That's also quite quite unique. We're based in London. Teams in Madrid, teams in San Francisco, investing pretty much anywhere along the Americas and Europe. So, so also that that is quite unique as well. And we've seen valuations skyrocket for some of these fintechs, with a recent valuation from Klarna, a firm, and Nubank exceeding ten billion. But most of these firms aren't making profits yet. Can you help me make sense of why this is happening? Yeah, I would say a few things to that. Um, because I think there's there's maybe a, a difference to be made between not making profits and not having good unit economics, right? And I think the reason why a number of these companies cannot show they're not posting profits is because they're reinvesting whatever they have in in growth. And and to some extent, that's, that's understandable. We see it across our portfolio because at the end of the day, what you want to do is not only have a great product, but also make, you sh- make sure that you build yourself into major market participant and for that you need to invest in marketing you need to invest in, in resources that will monetize maybe in the in the future right so i think uh i, I wouldn't hold the not making profit as necessarily a uh, something that's that's negative because there may be other type of business decisions underneath and i think the three companies that you that you mentioned which we we actually know quite well three of them they have very very strong business models, uh, and they're just investing in growth, 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 and international expansion, which um, which makes them successful. Um, I think another thing I would add, and, and it goes a little bit more with with maybe the times uh, and, and some of the comments we were we were making at the beginning around COVID. Uh, there has definitely been in the market a flight to quality, uh, and a lot of investors who may be a little bit more scared about the macro or a little bit more uncertain about emerging models have seen. In these companies that are, you know, well-known house, household brands, um, maybe kind of safe havens to put their money and keep on investing. So, so that flight to quality may have also contributed to to some of those large fundraisings that we've seen through through the last few months. And a talking point on VC Twitter, I'm not sure whether you follow it or not, but there's been a recent discussion around VC culture and how it can be somewhat exclusionary to marginalized groups. From meetings to getting into the tech bubble, plenty of VCs are coming forward asking for change in this industry. Do you think VC culture can change? If so, how? Um, So I think it has to change. Uh, It has to change. And, you know, this is a topic that's really dear to my heart um, as a, as a, you know, and for the, for the audience, I would point you guys at an organization that we sponsor here in London called included VC, which is precisely trying to bring diversity and kind of non-traditional uh, non-traditional profiles into the VC industry by training them and, and giving them access to kind of, you know, tier one VCs that then, you know, hopefully take them as interns, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I, th- I think VC culture needs to change. Uh, I mean, at the end of the day, um, you know, for me, venture capital is really about understanding the uniqueness of what an entrepreneur that's sitting in front of you uh, is uh, is trying to create and why you're able to identify that uniqueness before anybody else. So you're the one funding them as opposed to, you know, some, some other VC, right? And the thing is, I, I find it very hard to be able to fully comprehend the different viewpoints and the different needs that entrepreneurs are trying to solve if you have a very monolithic team that only thinks through one lens and that has the same experiences, backgrounds, et cetera, et cetera. 
So even in our team, I mean, uh, you know, as we build the team for Moro and we'll be, we'll be hiring people uh, along the lines of what I'm going to say now, uh, you know, we're trying to bring entrepreneurial talent. We're trying to bring people with, you know, tech backgrounds, with other personal backgrounds. Uh, we have, you know, 40% of our team are women. Uh, so we, we're really trying to foster that diversity, uh, not only because it's, it's a better environment to work, but also because I think it just equips us better to understand why what certain entrepreneurs are doing out there uh, is relevant for, for the problems they're trying to solve. Um, so, so I think it's not just, a, you know, not something that is a nice to have. I think VC culture should change as a way to keep being competitive and to really grasp those opportunities that are out there. And InnoVentures was early into fintechs like Curve and Ripple. What other fintechs and startups are in the lab and on your radar? Um, yeah, that's that's a good question. Yeah, no, very lucky to be Curve, very lucky to be in, in Ripple. We're early investors in Cabbage that got acquired by, um, by American Express the other day. We're early in iZettle, which you know a couple of years ago was acquired by PayPal. So a, a number of successes there. Uh, I mean... Our, our portfolio is public. Um, we're very excited about a number of our companies. Uh, we invested in a new bank in Mexico called Clar that's doing really well. Uh, we've invested in, uh, in you know, we're, we're looking at a few companies in London that we're extremely excited about that are kind of at the adjacencies of fintech and other industries where, um, you know, other big financial decisions are made. And that's very aligned with with our new thesis and with the fact that, uh, you know, if we want to track the way financial services are, are changing and advancing, uh, we need to, uh, we need to also explore the boundaries of the industry and invest a little bit outside to create those, uh, those bridges. Um, so, you know, that, that's a theme that you'll see more and more from us. And I think it's really interesting and really, really, uh, opening for, um, for, you know, for, for us who are trying to kind of bring some light on the future of the industry. We've reached part three of the show, and that means it's time for the fintech jail. Um, Manuel is going to submit an industry buzzword, a phrase or term to Sharon and I, and then we will decide whether it should be locked away in our little buzzword prison. Um, always remember the jail is not permanent, nor is it final. Uh, if you listen to the, to the last episode, you know that we offered we both offer parole and we snatch it away. Uh, so Manuel, what term have you brought with you today that you think should be a banished buzzword? Uh, I have an allergy to artificial intelligence. Oh, has that already been in there though? Ah, I'm not sure. Well then. Yes, I think it has actually. Tell us why you should get a longer sentence, Manuel. Yes. (laughs) So here's my case, right? And it it may be slightly personal, uh, but um, bear with me. I think there's so much to do to change financial services that oftentimes you don't need super deep tech. You don't need super advanced technologies just to reinvent things that are broken. Right. And oftentimes I've, I've seen that honestly, you know, it's, it's basic technology is just, you know, good design and do things the way you would do things in a, you know, in a contemporary manner, as opposed to old tech that solves the case and creates really, really good businesses. So usually when, we get pitched by an entrepreneur and kind of the buzzword is right away, oh, I have this artificial intelligence. That makes me very suspicious. And I'm like, oh, wait, tell me why you need all those buzzwords to really solve the problem and what's really underneath. Right? So it just uh, it creates a little bit of suspicion and allergy 
And so usually I try to kind of wipe it away and get to the core of the problem. That's my case. That's uh, it's it's really interesting actually to get the perspective from you know the the funding side of things. Is that do you see that a lot? Do you see a lot of companies saying that they offer something AI powered when it's not never something really to shout about? Uh, yes, I do see that a lot, and I, and I see a lot with other technologies too, where somehow the the means are confused with the end. And um, you know, if you had asked me this question a few years ago, I would have told you probably blockchain. And if you hadn't asked that question even more time ago, I would have said cloud computing, right? So, you know, having a company that does cloud computing is not particularly interesting. What I'm interested in is why do you use cloud computing? Why do you use blockchain? Why do you use AI to solve a problem? And I'm interested in the problem you're solving, not how you're solving it, right? And so at times you feel that uh, because there may be a demand on the investor side to showcase, you know, very advanced technology that that gets, uh, you know, kind of uh, highlighted in the description as opposed to saying, well, what are you actually solving for? Hmm, That is quite interesting because you've mentioned AI blockchain, which is also in the jail. We've got two that are already in there, but we haven't actually had cloud computing in there. And you did actually mention a new spin on why AI should stay in the jail. Um, I think it's currently sat at five years without us using it and, and reviewing as to why it is we use it as an industry, both in finance and the media. But I think your argument for cloud computing is quite interesting and why we need to put it in the jail. Would you prefer to see cloud in the jail now that you are aware that AI is firmly locked away? Uh, we can put cloud in there. Yeah, it's it's a vintage touch to the job, but let's put cloud in there. Yes, I agree. Um, I don't know about you, Alex. What, what do you think about cloud? Uh, it makes me, I feel sad. <laughs> uh, my, my, first, <laughs> my first job in reporting was about cloud computing back in 2012. Uh, so I'm feeling nostalgic and emotional about it. So you better just lock it away before, before I, I go on a, uh, a nostalgic tangent. All right. It looks like we're going to give cloud at least 10 years because it's making Alex sad. And I do not want that. Okay. Only I should be able to do that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Uh, But no, I I completely agree. We'll lock cloud computing um, away uh, for another day. Well, that's all we have time for for this episode. Thanks to Sharon and Melmore for joining me. But before we sign off, uh, we've got a chance to plug some socials or websites or uh, any kinds of ventures. So, uh, Melmore, uh, anything you'd like to plug? Uh, well, of course, you know, our website, we're very proud of it. Fresh, new, uh, morocapital.com. Everything you need to get in touch with us or to know more about us is there. So, morocapital.com is your new best website. Uh, okay, cool. Uh, Sharon, everyone, anyone who's listening to the podcast knows that you're very online, but where, where, can, we, <laughs> where can we find you online? You can find me at Fintech Kits. That's at Fintech in the regular way you spell it. And then K-I-T-S, like football kits, you know, because um, that's that's my middle name and, and it wasn't taken. So I thought I'll, I'll just use that handle. Um, also, 
I have a video with the voice of woman. Um, if you want to check out my career journey, you might think, well, she's so young. How could she possibly have um, anything interesting to say? But I do have some stuff, you know, I have some highlights about what it is like to work in finance as a young black woman. And yeah, you can check it out. It is on my Twitter. I have pinned it. So go and watch that video if you have like 15 minutes to spare. It's not that long. Um, also, we have the Banking Tech magazine that was out and we also have the Finnovate supplement. So Finnovate Fall is still going at the time of recording, um, but you can check out the supplement and our news for the highlights in case you missed it. Fantastic. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at, at ADHamilton91 and on LinkedIn by searching my name. Uh, and remember, you can find Sharon at, at Fintech Kits, those people who forget to tag her when they talk about our podcast on Twitter. We know who you are. We're not going to mention you, but we know who you are. I know. Uh, <laughs> Rude. I see you. <laughs> As for Fintech Futures, you can find us online at www.fintechfutures.com, uh, on Twitter at, at Fintech Futures, and on LinkedIn just by searching Fintech Futures and looking for the, the lovely logo, the two purple and black Fs. Uh, if you like this podcast and our other episodes, then subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcasting service of choice. Uh, we'd also really appreciate it if you could help other listeners find the podcast by writing a review or recommending us to a friend. Thanks very much for any and all support. Uh, we'll see you soon for another episode of What the Fintech. But until then, goodbye.